Well, bless God this morning. Amen. Um, I'm going to ask you, we're going to be going through Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if anyone needs a Bible, we have a Bible here. If anybody, anybody need a Bible, we have a Bible here. Okay. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to begin this morning with a question. All right, so let's get our thinking caps on. That's what they used to say when we were little kids, right? Get your thinking caps on. And we used to make that ridiculous motion. But we're going to start this morning. Can anyone tell me the most recorded song in history? And not only the most recorded, but it is also recorded by more artists than any other song in history. And it is not White Christmas, Bing Crosby. Anybody know? Who said yeah? Oh, okay. <laughs> Amen. It is Amazing Grace. The most recorded song in history, recorded by more artists than anybody in history. This song was written by a gentleman by the name of John Newton. It was written in 1779. John Newton, whose mother had a heart for Scripture, who taught him Bible verses when he was a child, and she passed away when he was just seven years old. What followed Newton was a life of boarding schools and eventually enlisting in the British Navy, where he ultimately deserted. He was captured and then he was beaten. And in those days when they beat you, they flogged you, which means they hit you with either sticks, thin sticks, but it was a whipping, so he got flogged. And then he became... Um, he became so angry that he eventually left for Africa, in his words, that I might send my fill. He was intent on just going berserk and being, a, let's say it, a good, a good sinner. He was going all out of it. He became a kind of a reprobate alcoholic. He was a slave trader. Newton ended up working for a Portuguese slave trader. And his wife, the slave trader's wife, hated him so much that when her husband wasn't around, in order for him to be fed, she would make him go on all fours and act like an animal and feed him like an animal. If he refused to do it, he was severely beaten by the owner when he returned uh, on his trip. Newton himself was a brawler. It was said that he could not say a sentence without adding tons of profanities to it. He was a severe alcoholic, a slave trader, and often entertained thoughts of murder. In no sense of the word could Newton ever have been thought of as a decent human being. I think we could agree with that, right? It is the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, that can bring such a degenerate man to new life in Christ. He did not remain what he was. I want to point this out. He did not remain what he was and then added Jesus to have a better life. He was born again, transformed, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and the amazing grace. You know, in 2 Corinthians, I love this verse. I say it to myself many, many times during the week. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Whatever you were before Jesus Christ, whatever the sins you did before Jesus Christ, whatever degeneracy you may have found yourself or not, all of the old things have passed away, and everything becomes new. John Newton wrote that famous song, Amazing Grace, and you know that second stanza says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Think about that. It was the grace of God that taught him to fear God, but it was the grace of God that relieved those fears. He goes on to say, how precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. 
So what do we mean? You know, we, we believe in, in what, are, what the Reformers call the five solas of the Reformation, right? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Scripture has all authority alone, and only God receives the glory alone. Today we're going to look at grace alone. We're going to look at grace alone. That word is bantered about very often, is it not? We like to say there, but, but, but for the grace of God go I. And I don't know that we realize fully what we're saying. When we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel of what? We preach the gospel of grace. And so we firmly hold to this grace alone. So what do we mean when we speak about God's grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, the saving grace of Christ? Well, in 1996, 25 years ago, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals came together to define these great truths of grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And they wrote this. We reaffirm that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques of strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerate human nature. Simply put, the grace that saves is a work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit made and provisioned for by Christ's substitutionary death alone on the cross and the believer entrusting themselves fully and wholly to that finished work. Think about it like this. If one day you were going to go and stand before the Lord and the Lord would say, what should I do to let you in? What did you do? Tell me what you did. Why should I let you into heaven? By the way, that's never going to happen that way, but I'm just using it by way of an example, right? There are many people that are going to stand there and say, well, let me, let me tell you a few things, Lord. We know from Matthew 7, there are going to be people that are going to be out there and say, let me tell you a few things. I cast out devils in your name. I did great works in your name. I did all these other different things in your name. There are going to be people that say, I was in church every single time church was open. I memorized the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I said it forward. I said it backwards. I did this. I did that. I did the other thing. And all of that is going to fall short. It's wood, hay, and stubble. What the Lord wants to see here is your son paid for my sins. And I entrusted myself to Christ wholly and completely and I was born again by the blood of Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ I was no longer the same Christ is now my Lord and so I want to be able to take a look at that because simply put as the the Council of Evangelicals stated simply put Unbelievers make no claim. They have no claim on God. That this grace we speak of is a supernatural work of God whereby God calls the sinner to himself, opens their eyes to believe the truth of the gospel, and does a work of regeneration in their heart. You are made new. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing and the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, that was a supernatural work. God opened your eyes to believe. And the proof in the pudding is how you see life differently in Christ than before Christ. 
Grace alone was one of those great five essential doctrines of the Reformation. And grace alone is being lost in, in just an amazing deconstruction of the historic Christian faith. Many people believe, hey, well, I became a Christian because I raised my hand, I walked an aisle, I said a prayer, I did this, this guy prayed for me, oh, I had a revelation, you know, I did... Listen, none of that. True regeneration, true rebirth in Christ is a sovereign, divine work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he opens our eyes to the truth, just as he said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. We even on our website list the five solars, and under grace we put this. What must I earn? What must I earn? That's the question. What must I earn to be made right with God? And our definition is, you know, we put the question out there, what can I do to earn my salvation? The answer is no. Nothing. We're emphatic about that. Salvation is of grace alone. It is not of works or merit. His salvation is entirely based upon his grace. Now, what problem does grace solve? It solves the sin that separates us from God. The starting point in grace alone has to do with sin. And it has to do with the very sin that separates a human being from God. We are born into that sin. It is part of that natural depravity, right? Because of the fall, the human race is cursed. So we are born separated from God. So there has to be something that reunites us. Well, what are the things that separate us from God? Well, Psalm 51, David's very famous prayer of repentance, lists three things. Number one, iniquity. I'm sure you've heard the term if you've been in the church for a while. What is iniquity? Well, the technical definition is perversion, but it is not merely sexual perversion. It is a perverting or a corruption of the soul. And it refers to the state of sin or the natural depravity of sin. We are all born in iniquity. David says in one of famous Psalms, in sin was I conceived. So we have iniquity. What's the other one David talks about? He talks about transgressions. What is a transgression? It's crossing a forbidden boundary. There are actual sins, and those sins are active violations of the moral law of God. It's one of the things I like to do with people when sharing the gospel is to take them through the Ten Commandments. And why do we do that? Because the pervasive mindset out there today is I'm a good person and I am deserving of grace. Let me tell you something. I'll start with me. I won't talk about you, but I'll start with me. I'm not a good person. I'm not deserving of grace. There are more times than I care to that Satan will remind me about my past. And he will show me imageries about my past. And you've heard me say this time and time again where the enemy may say, oh, if only those people knew what you did back then. If some of the old people run into the room that I used to hang out with years ago and say, all oh, those people know what you're doing now. Boy, let me go in there. I'll tell them some stories. Satan has no problem re re reminding me of my transgressions, my violating the moral law of God. And in case you don't know, where is the moral law of God found? Well, it's found in the Ten Commandments. So when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ and you get the person that says, are you a good person? You say, well, great. Let's give it a shot. Did you ever, you ever tell a lie? Now, I think I met one person once who said they never told a lie. And I went, liar! <laughs> but there is, we're not to bear false witness, right? So if we told lies, and if you ask most people, if they're really honest with themselves, and say, you ever told a lie? They say, yeah, how many? Hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, Well, that's a violation of God's moral law. 
You ever look at a man and woman with lust in your heart? That's a violation of God's moral law. You ever take something that didn't belong to you, no matter what the value? You just did a little... That's a violation of God's moral law. Here's one. Do you ever take the Lord's name in vain? And by the way, let me add something with this. When the Bible talks about taking the Lord's name in vain, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we think of the bad word GD. And we say, well, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. But that's not what that commandment implies. Matter of fact, what it means is taking the Lord's name loosely or wastefully. So, you know, when you're sitting on your iPhone and you, somebody tells you, sends you new news and you go, oh my, G- OMG. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. When you get frustrated and you go, oh God. Guess what? That's taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, when you're walking around and you're using the name of God loosely, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. What did Jesus pray in his famous sermon, right? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To the Jews, the name of God was so holy that they never said it. So they invented another form referring to the name of God. That is Jehovah. But the name of God is Yahweh. It was never said, nor it was never written. It was written in abbreviations because so holy was the name of God. Now God's name is blasphemed throughout the earth by government officials. Listen, God's name is blasphemed in the earth in churches. So now we're 0 for 5. Are we not on transgressions? There's other things in there like honor thy father and thy mother. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The principle of the Sabbath, and time forbids me to get into that whole dialogue. I'll do that one day, probably on a Tuesday night. But these are transgressions when we violate the specific moral law of God. And back to Psalm 51, there's another word that David uses, and this word we're well familiar with. It's called sin. And sin literally means missing the mark or falling short of God's righteousness. And probably the most famous verse that defines that is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. In Romans 3, 9 through 12, Paul goes out of his way to say, there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none that seeketh after God. There are none that are holy. All have fallen astray. These are the three things. So grace, when we talk about grace alone, grace alone is the remedy to this sin. Grace deals with God's grace. It's the single thing that puts an end to the dominion of sin, the bondage of sin, and spiritual isolation from God. I want to say that again. It is God's grace that puts an end to the dominion of sin. If you've been with us for Tuesday night, you know we've been going verse by verse through the book of Romans. And when we went through Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 6, probably the definitive chapter in the Bible that changed my perspective on God's grace, changed my theology completely. But in Romans chapter 6 says, In verse 4, he says, we have been buried with him in baptism. We have been raised in newness of life. 
Sin is no longer master over you. In the second half of Romans chapter 6, he does comparatives. He said, used to be a slave of sin. Now you're a slave of righteousness. That word in the Greek is doulos. It means a slave that was purchased. It was property. And a slave, as I've said time and time again, has no right of his own. The slave doesn't walk into the master's office and say, hey boss, I'm taking Saturday, Sunday, and Monday off. I'm going away with my family. It does not work because a slave has no right. And that's the equation that Paul makes. You used to be a slave of sin. You did the bidding of sin. You were under the control and the domination of sin. And that is every person prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care how good you thought you were. I don't think, I don't care how moral you thought you were. All of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to what? His own way. And so there needed to be a remedy. And the remedy is the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. It could be rightly said that the absence of God's grace in a person's life is the absence of salvation in a person's life. Grace reveals itself in good works. Spiritual works in development that glorify God. Let me share something. The works don't come first. Grace comes first. The salvation grace of God comes first. And it is followed by good works. Whenever the gospel gets perverted, it's the other way around. I'm going to do good works so that I could please God. Do you know that's every other religion in the world talks about what you must do to appease God, to satisfy God, except historic biblical Christianity that says there is nothing you can do to please God other than what Christ has already done. And we appropriate that grace by faith. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we uh, might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But notice what he goes on to say. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. Notice, you can share the gospel with whomever. You could use the greatest logic. You could put together the best argument. You could sit with the wisest man and answer every single one of his questions as it relates to the faith of Jesus Christ. And if he is not touched by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God does not open his eyes to faith, he is lost. And it will not make sense. Now, I'm a dumb man. But I have sat with some people sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have answered their questions. And I have looked at them and said, does that answer your question? Yes. What other questions do you have? I don't have any. Will you come to faith in Christ? No. Why? The Spirit of God didn't prick their hearts. He didn't open their eyes to believe. He didn't give them ears to hear what the Spirit has to say why because grace is a sovereign work of god a sovereign work of the holy spirit put simply the natural person the unsaved the unbeliever does not accept the things of god for they cannot so what do we mean when we say salvation is through grace alone by faith alone in christ alone and that's what we're going to answer so turn with me to ephesians chapter 2 You all with me so far, right? Okay, good. Just testing. I always wondered if I put a, like a little buzzer in the seats and then like everybody looking at it go, and then you see you're all shake and everything else. Ephesians is probably one of the greatest epistles. It's the epistle of Todd. 
Todd, like I love Romans, Todd loves Ephesians. Whenever Todd preaches, you'll always hear him quote from Ephesians. And I'll always look at him and give him a little wink. That's our thing. Ephesians is probably one of the greatest epistles that looks at the whole issue of the grace of God and the salvation that it produces. Ephesians chapter 2 is the definitive chapter in the Bible on the grace of God. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 looks at grace from God's perspective. But Ephesians chapter 2 looks at grace from our perspective. And we will look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 in three parts and explore the conditions necessary for grace. And I would outline this, if you want to write this down in your notes or in your bulletin, I outline Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 this way. Verses 1 through 3, I call it, Dead men walking. Ephesians verses 4 through 7. The divine deliverer. And Ephesians verses 8 through 10. The demonstration of grace. Let's take a look at the first part. Dead men walking. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that was now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I want to call your attention to that first word. You were dead in your trespasses. And so, well, we know what the trespasses were, right? They're the transgressions. They're the violations of God's law. And we know what sin is. It's missing the mark. So what does the Word of God say? What does Paul tell this church in Ephesus? Before you were in Christ, you were dead. Dead. I want to call your attention to that. I mentioned earlier that humans are born with a natural, uh, 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 are not born with a natural affinity toward God. The effects of the fall have left all people in a spiritual estate separated from God. Paul describes that as dead. Why does God have preachers? Why is there a gospel? Why does God have evangelists? Why are Christians called to share the good news? Why? Because people are separated from God in their trespasses and sins. But Paul takes it a step further. He says they're dead. They're spiritually dead. So let me ask you a question. Can a dead person speak? Can a dead person act? Can a dead person undead themselves? No. It takes outside intervention outside intervention. I know I've mentioned this once before, but when I was coaching uh, high school baseball here in, in Orlando, I had one of my players, a pitcher, collapse dead on the mound. And I ran out to him and we started doing CPR and I was smacking him and I was praying on him and everything else. He was 15 years old. He was blue. He had a death rattle. And I said, I am losing this young boy right in my hands. And then all of a sudden, the trainer from the school came out on the field. And he had an AED. And he connected it to his chest. And it did an assessment. And the assessment said, no pulse, no heart rate, shock advised. And we put the pads on him, hit the button, took our hands off, An electric current went through him. He wreathed up the first time, nothing. It went through again, wreathed up the second time, and a heartbeat started coming back. Matter of fact, the boy's name is Robbie Modesto. What saved Robbie's life? Outside intervention. A current of power that came, that started his heart. What saves the Christian Outside intervention, the work of the Holy Spirit, come and open the eyes and breathe new life 
into a dead spiritual heart. Without some external intervention, all unsaved people would be lost. You and I would be lost if God depended on our intelligence, if God depended on our own wisdom, if God depended on our own good works. Let me tell you, there wouldn't be a person saved ever. And what holds them dead? Trespasses and sins. Look at verse 2 and 3 to accentuate his point here. Paul talks about this. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, notice these words, you formerly walked. That's an interesting thing. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice that he's clearly stating he is writing to who? He is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. He's saying, look, Christians, you, those of you that have been born again, guess what? You used to walk that way. And I've heard the testimony of some of you that used to tell me, Pastor, I used to be this. I used to do that. I was a crazy person. I used to do all these other different things. But now I no longer have the desire. Now I no longer walk in that pattern. Praise God. Yes, brother Mike, clap. Yes. Paul says you used to walk that way. Not you're currently walking that way. And oh, by the way, you got Jesus, so you're not going to hell. He says, used to walk according to the pattern of the world. That Greek word there is cosmos for world. That means spirit or age. Used to walk according to the spirit or the age, the culture of the world. Verse 3 says, among them we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What that means, you were by nature children appointed unto the wrath of God. Why do we preach the gospel? Because unbelievers sin under the wrath of God. And so out of love, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us, it controls us. We preach the gospel and we say, be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. Come and be saved and find new life in Christ. Know what it is to enter into a relationship with God, to know that your eternity is secure in Him. Yesterday, my wife and I were talking over dinner. And my wife made this statement. She said, you know, there are people there that, you know, they, they, they want to know Christ, right? And so we share the gospel with them. And she goes, and then there's people who say, I don't want to know. And she made a great observation. She said, they got to, they gotta, what, what were your terms, bud? You got you to gotta own it. That's it. You got to be okay with it. You got to own it. You got to say, I don't believe, so therefore I'm willing to deal with everything that comes, but they know not what they say. Because the wrath of God is horrific. It's not going to be light like I didn't pick you to play on my team, so you go sit on the bench. There are eternal spiritual consequences for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that eternal spiritual consequence is hell. You have spurned the grace of God. You have spurned the only Savior. There is no longer redemption. Listen, we're living in a day and age of grace right now. But I'm going to tell you something. Grace is going to end. And if you ask me, it's going to end pretty soon. And so we got to live with a purpose. We got to live with an intentionality. We got to live realizing that those we love that are outside of Christ, we got to reach them. This isn't easy stuff. But if you don't know that you were lost in your trespasses and sins, then guess what? Grace isn't amazing. And there are many people who walk around saying, I deserve this. So in verses 1 to 3, we see... Dead men walking. We see an excellent picture of all human beings outside the grace of God. And this is the natural estate of people outside of Christ. 
all of them are spiritually walking dead. Let's look at the second point, the divine deliverer, verses 4 through 7. And I love this. I love this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 4. And this is the point that I wanted to make here about the divine deliverer. Human beings needed someone who could infuse spiritual life into them. And that someone was God himself through the finished work of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Note that our salvation commences directly with God. You've heard me say this many times, and I hope it takes root in you. Always rejoice when you see, but God. But God. Oh, I thank God so many times for the but God. And here it is. You used to be that way, speaking to the church. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. Now listen, I want to point something out here. Who is this directed to? I'm going to tell you, this is directed to the church. He is writing to the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, as he talks about the sovereignty of God and the beauty of God, it is all written to believers. It's written to those who know him. So the question for us is, who is the us? And we know very surely It is the elect, it is the church, it is the believers, those that follow Christ. Now, while it can be said that God has a love for all his creation, it can equally be said that God has a great love for his elect, for his church, for those who follow Christ those who were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. Look, right here the text tells us. But God, being rich in mercy, let's stop right there. Mercy that is undeserved. God is being rich in mercy toward those who are outside of Christ, right? Because of his what? Great love. With which he loved us. The us are the believers. It is the church. God's great love toward us. Now listen, if you are in Christ, I want you to get this. God had a great love for his children. A great love. And that great love was demonstrated in God sending his only son to pay the penalty for our sins. Paul tells the church, husbands, love your wives as Christ what? Loved the world? No. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. And so we could see here The great love of God. And in verse 5, what happened because of that great love of God? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice, we didn't reform ourselves. We didn't make ourselves better. So many times I've talked to people, say, why don't you come to church? They say, oh, if I ever came to church, the ceiling's going to collapse on me. I said, come on, man, that's nonsense. No, 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 you don't understand. Listen, man, I'm going to get myself right. And then when I get myself right, I'll come to church. So basically, you're never coming to church, right? That's basically the story. That's not what it needs. You need people that have come to church that are broken. You need the saints that are in the church to surround the people that are broken, to love the people that are broken, to bring them the gospel of peace. 
But whenever somebody says, well, I got to back off. Or somebody says, I'm not living right right now, so I'm going I'm to just go away a little bit. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Listen, you're a hypocrite every single day. Don't let that stop you. Who came into church in a right state? And so what people do is they remove themselves from the word of God. They remove themselves from the fellowship of God. But here's the thing. God being rich in mercy and love with which he great love us. What did he do? He made us alive together with who? He made us alive together with him. Get this. Get this. Please don't lose this. When we have been saved, when we have been born again in Christ, he has quickened us to life and made us alive together with him. He has given us the Holy Spirit, not only to fill us, but he's given the Holy Spirit as the revealer of truth so that he can continue to confirm his will and his way in our life. And more and more and more, we become sanctified and separated unto him. Where would we be if that truth was not so? Lost. Not only did God make us alive together with Him, but in verse 6, look at these words. He raised us up. He raised us up and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We just lost two sisters in this church. Nancy Small and Sister Virginia. Guess what? They've been raised up. They've been seated in heavenly places in Christ. They had a reservation up there. And when they got to the pearly gates, if there is such a thing, which I doubt, and they went to the front desk, they said, name, and they said, Virginia Valerie. They said, okay, Jesus got a dwelling place for you. What's your name? Nancy Small, oh, Jesus got a dwelling place for you. And anyone you love who died in Christ, when they went up, they said, Jesus got a dwelling place. Why? Because Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if it weren't so, I would have told you so. We have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies because of the grace of God. And why does he do it? Verse 7. In order in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, that salvation is about God. It's not all about me. See, that the gospel is about God. It's all about Christ, but it's not all about me. The way the, the, way the gospel has slightly been manipulated. To sound something like, man, I am so special. God loves me so much that he gave me Jesus Christ for me so that I could be born again, so I I could not go to hell, so that all the possessions of Christ are mine in Christ Jesus. It's the twisting. It's the manipulating. When what is it all about? Verse 7, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward those of us in Christ Jesus. Oh, praise God. Many people, this is significant because most people directly will either directly or indirectly tell you what they did to come to Christ. They went forward in meeting, they raised their hand, they studied the scripture. But scripture would testify elsewise. They think about John chapter 6, 35 through 40, you don't have to turn there. Jesus said, all who the Father has given me will come to me. In John 6, 44, it says, No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. In Titus 2, 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously in a, God, in a godly in the present age. And as we opened with Titus 3, 4, and 5, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appear, He saved us. Grace is so incomprehensible, it does not make sense. 
Why would God love those who are in opposition to Him? Who don't want saving? Who love their sin? Therefore, it can only be, it can only be a work of God. Whose love surpasses, by the way, our understanding. And it cannot be a work of a human. Now let's take a look at verse 8, the demonstration of God's grace. And this is displayed through God's grace. You guys know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I want to be clear with this. The definition of that word grace in the Greek is charis. And it means God's unmerited favor, but it goes beyond God's unmerited favor. It means God's unmerited favor, but His empowerment for living. It is unmerited in that it is undeserved. None of us deserve it. Can we agree on that? Can we say an amen on that? None of us deserve the grace of God. No one can earn the grace of God. Grace means Lord God's favor. It's His favor disposed upon us. And notice something in verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. And not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now I want to, there's a lot of controversy in this respective verse. I'm going to try and narrow it down for you. But it's this. If you look at the construct of that sentence. Of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Inserted there is through faith. The subject goes from the grace to the faith that saves. Okay? And becomes a key word in there. A and D becomes a key word. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now, the gift of God refers back to the faith. We are saved by grace, but we are saved through faith. Faith is that entrusting. Faith is that falling upon. Faith is the finished work. And of that faith, Paul makes it crystal clear. It's not of yourself. And he goes further. It is a gift. Of God. Here we see the divine act. Here we see the divine move of God in the grace of the believer. It is that faith that is imparted to us. It is the faith that opens our eyes to believe. We apprehend it. We take it. We pursue it. It is the irresistible grace of God that draws the sinner who now becomes a believer. Their eyes are open. The effectual call of the Spirit goes out and we respond. And what are we responding to? We're responding to the grace. How are we responding it? Through faith. We're entrusting ourselves. We're saying there is no other way. Our eyes have been opened. We have seen the holiness of God. We understand our sinfulness. And in that moment, we cry out to God and say, Save me, Lord, lest I die. Now, you know my testimony. I was raised in a Christian home. I've said this millions of times, so I'm not going to belabor it. I was raised in a Christian home. I was a saint on Sunday. I was a sinner month through Saturday. Nobody knew, by the way, in the church how I lived my life because I had two lives. I lived one life in front of the people of God. I lived another life behind the back of the people of God. And I knew a lot of Scripture. I was raised with it. And probably 75% of what I know today I learned in, in church as a young boy. And I thought I was right with God. 
I thought I was one of the sinners. I thought I was one of the saved. Man, I can't tell you how many times I raised my hand. I can't tell you how many times I walked the aisle. I can't tell you how many times I cried and said, I'm never going to do that again. But I had a problem. And the problem was I couldn't stop sinning. It didn't matter how much Bible I knew. All that mattered was my heart was constantly inclined to sin. And no matter how much I may have wanted to stop, I couldn't stop. And I'm going to submit to you today because I was dead in my trespasses and sin. And a dead man cannot do anything to bring himself to life. I needed infusion of an external power. So I was raised like that, right? I thought I was, quote, a carnal Christian. By the way, that's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. And so I kept living like that. You know what else I did? I preached like that. I was the prodigy. I was the next one. Go ahead, brother, preach, preach. I get up there, man. I, I used to get up there with such pride. I said, man, I got this whooped. Wait till they see me. And I go up there and I do all my mumbo jumbo, do all the other stuff, except it was dead works. It was religious works. And I praise God that came a day where God said, I'm putting an end to this. And I went down a path that I never want to go down again. And God revealed to me the ugliness of my heart and showed me my filthiness. And so I did what every good sinner does when God does that. I ran further away from God. But praise God. My name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And God was only using those circumstances to bring me to a point of repentance where I had to release myself from all that I put my faith and trust in. And I had to come broken and desperate before a holy and righteous God. And God did that. And He crushed me. Until I said, Lord, either you're going to save me or I'm going to die. One or the other. And you know what? God's word is true. And he came and he saved. And he regenerated. And he made me new. And new desires began to percolate inside of me. And new inclinations toward the things of God and the Spirit. Let me tell you something. It didn't happen overnight. Oh, there was still some more sanctification that needed to go on in my life. There needed to be more separation from sin. But God in His presence and His Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. And then He sanctified. And let me tell you, if you are in Christ, He did the same thing for you. Don't put your trust in any act that you did in the past. Don't put your trust in anything else you may have trusted in. Put your faith strictly and solely in this. I have fallen on the grace of God. I have cried out to God, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Cleanse me and change me. Come to Christ. Throw yourself on him, for there is no other way. And in that moment, God opened my eyes to the truth. God gave me faith to believe, and I fell at the feet of Christ. And I implore you, I encourage you, any that are here, any that are listening to this message, I encourage you by the grace of God, if the Spirit of God is tugging upon your heart, if you have struggled with sin for too long, you cannot find deliverance. Cry out to God and say, God, save me lest I die. And fall completely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'll wrap this up. This is the best part and I got to wrap it up. (laughs) By grace we have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Look at verse 9. Not the result of works lest any man should boast. What happens with works? Precisely All people boast, look at me, I did this, look at me, I did that, I have this track record. Well, this is why it is a work of God, so that no one could claim the credit that is reserved for God and God alone, because God will not share his glory with another. And now there's a purpose in verse 10 behind the grace. There's a very definitive purpose. The purpose is this. 
We're not saved so that we get a get out of hell free ticket card. We're saved to bring glory to God. That is the purpose. Look at verse 10. We are his workmanship. What does his workmanship imply? That he begat us, that he crafted us, that he molded us, that he built us up. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were saved to glorify God. We were saved to do good works that give testimony, honor, and glory to God, not so that we could sit at home and retreat and say, well, I got eternity locked up. There's nothing else I need to do. And where do those good works take place? In the church, through the church, outside the church. The salvation of God is all about Him. God is glorified in us and through our changed lives, through our hunger and our pursuit of Him, through being set apart unto God. God is glorified in our trials and in our suffering, in our success, in our worship of Him, in our testifying for Him, and in our desire for Him. You ever have one of those days you say, I can't get enough of this, man. I can't get enough of the Lord. You know, I always say, Bob Run used to say it with me, I can't get past grace. I can't. I understand maybe some of the theology associated with it, but I don't understand the mind of God that would save a man like me. I can't get past grace. And that's what makes grace so astounding, so astonishing is the love that God provided. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It is because of His great love and mercy, like we saw in John Newton. So what happened to John Newton? The change in John Newton's life, became, um, in John Newton's life came when he finally escaped the Portuguese slave trader. He found the ship heading to England and caught a ride. The captain of that ship, upon learning that Newton had seaman skills, made him a crew bait. Off the coast of Scotland, <clears throat> they hit a severe storm, and the ship began to toss and take on water. Newton was ordered below deck to assist in bailing and pumping water from the ship. Newton was sure that he would die. But the God of grace, who never forgot him, got hold of his heart and brought to remembrance the Bible verses his mother taught him before he was age seven. The way of salvation came to John Newton and he was saved. He later became a preacher and was the author behind the great hymn Amazing Grace. And because of this, he was able to write, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The epitaph on John Newton's gravestone simply says this. John Newton, clerk, which means preacher, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel by which he had long labored to destroy. He ministered near 16 years in Olney in Bucks and 28 years in this church. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, the glory of God's amazing grace. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this day 
Many of us come here, Lord, because of that grace that changed our life. And so, Father, we pray today that if there be any here that knows not the grace of God, does not know the life-giving power of that grace, does not know the person of the Holy Spirit, does not know you, Father, that you would speak to their heart and that you would save their soul, Lord. We thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and magnified now and forevermore in the church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.